This week's Parshas, Parshas Vayetzei. The title for this week's class is Head in the Heavens, Feet on the Ground. This month, the month of Kislev, is sponsored by Albert and Cindy Benalum in honor of Gena Nash, with her name Golda Bas Avraham, Aleha Hashalom, on her first yard site with love, love from the entire family. And you know how much we appreciate the Benalums in our community and what you know, contributors in every way they are to everyone in our community. And we are saddened by this loss. We are heartened always by Cindy's participation and all of the wonderful things she and her children are doing here for our South Florida community and in other places too, I'm sure. This week is also dedicated to Ilui Nishmas Elian Rackman, a true Aishas Heil and loving mother and grandmother. So again, the title of our class, Head in the Heavens, Feet on the Ground, is such because I think in our forefather, Yaakov Avinu, we are going to discover an amazing capacity for being a lofty person in all ways, but nonetheless, a shepherd of more than 20 years for a wicked father-in-law, a charlatan con artist called Lovin. In order to accomplish that, Yaakov must certainly also have two feet on the ground. And of course, that's something we will embellish as we progress through this class. One of the well-known dichotomies of the human experience that I think we can all attest is our wide capacity for greatness, excellence, and significance, and conversely, for inferiority, out and outright crumminess, or worthlessness, or worse. Unfortunately, we see people of all types. It is easy to recognize that human beings contain many of the same features as all animals, such as physical form and physical needs, as well, in addition to that or those, a unique distinctive essence, such as creative intelligence, imagination, introspection, and moral discernment. It appears that most, if not all, of the self-determination of man and his achievement of greatness versus lowness, etc., depends on man's choosing how to use all the components of his genetic material, right? All aspects of being a human being, the elevated lofty aspects, as well as the more temporal and physical and mundane, such as the animalistic aspects. Now, sometimes we are privileged to encounter people of great righteousness or wisdom other great aspects of a human being. And at other times we meet people on the other end of the spectrum. So a reasonable question is what is a formula to enable achievement towards greatness, excellence and significance and not God forbid the opposite, right? In other words, assuming that that's important to us on any level that we don't fall victim to the loneliness, to the inferiority, to the worthlessness that some human beings do fall victim to that kind of identity, what is the formula to ensure that we instead lean and tilt and you know, push ourselves towards the side of the spectrum that is greatness and significance and excellence, etc.? So I suggest that as we continue to read in the Torah, the developing saga of Yaakov and Asa, we must pay close attention to the ingredients that cause the radical disparity between these twins and their maturation into 
essentially polar opposite human beings. So my point is that if we pay attention to this storyline, we should get insight into what is a formula that we can latch onto and learn from that Yaakov Avinu represents, because he certainly achieves greatness as we will discuss in a moment. I further suggest that Yaakov Avinu himself, even among the giants that are our ancestors and our greatest prophets, Yaakov Avinu has a unique preeminence and he is also a paragon that we can learn to emulate. So there's two elements to the Yaakov Avinu that I want to put forth. One is that he has a unique primacy. There is an element of Yaakov Avinu that is considered to be first, best, or choicest, as we'll discuss in a moment. But another element of Yaakov Avinu is that he is the forefather to whom we can most relate. Right? Avraham Avinu is a paragon of earth-shattering proportions in his pioneering thinking, in his ability to change the world, and in his seeming almost, you know, complete perfection as a human being. Whereas Yaakov Avinu, on the other hand, is a person of seeming uh, struggles and turbulence in the many travails in his life. <clears throat> so in many ways, Yaakov Avinu is a more relatable person. So we're going to look towards Yaakov Avinu to learn from his example because of these two aspects. Number one is that he's considered to be preeminent and best. And number two, because we can relate to him and hopefully build a formula towards our own achievement of excellence and greatness. So here's five points on Yaakov Avinu's unique preeminence. Number one, Yaakov Avinu was titled by our rabbis as the choicest of the forefathers. <clears throat> you can look up Horatius Rabbah 76-1 for a reference there. And in many of the later commentaries, Yaakov was considered to be the Bechir or the Bachor Sheba Avos, which is the choicest of the forefathers. Okay, whatever the reason that's true, I'm just pointing that out. That's a unique distinction of Yaakov Avinu. Number two, the angels recognize the face of Yaakov Avinu as the same face that's depicted on the throne of glory in heaven. So Hashem's throne has a depiction of a human being and the angels <clears throat> identify that picture that's on the throne of HaKadosh Baruch Hu as the image of Yaakov Avinu, right? That's a unique distinction of Yaakov Avinu. Number three, Yaakov Avinu birthed the 12 tribes and because of that, it's considered to have a complete bed, quote unquote. What is a complete bed? He didn't have any Yishmael. He didn't have an Esav. He had the 12 tribes. That's number three. Number four, well, his name is something that we're all partial to. And by that, I mean his earned name called Yisrael, which is the name of every single Jew that came after him. We are a Yisrael. <clears throat> and so therefore, that became the essential name of our people that must speak again to the primacy of Yaakov Avinu. And number four, the name Yisrael references that Yaakov Avinu battled and overcame many powerful people or forces or angels that opposed him. So Yaakov Avinu has this distinction of conquering these opposing forces. So these are all elements of the greatness of Yaakov Avinu. So for those of us that are interested in growing our greatness and significance, we ought to look deeply at what the Torah teaches us about the development of Yaakov Avinu and his upward trajectory as he became our premier forefather. I just want to make a disclaimer here. Avram Avinu was unbelievable. 
Yitzchak Avinu is unbelievable, but they're a different type of unbelievable. Okay, we just have to, you know, accept the fact that in some major way, Yaakov Avinu is considered the choicest. Okay, and obviously the 12 tribes are a major testimony to that greatness. So one of the mysteries <clears throat> trying to unravel, you know, what is the greatness of Yaakov Avinu is one of the mysteries of the origin story of Yaakov Avinu is that the details of his life in the Chumash are sparse indeed. Here are the facts of what we know of Yaakov Avinu prior to this week's parsha. So if we look back in last week's parsha, which is the first time Yaakov Avinu appears in the scene, here's a, basically a paragraph giving us the facts. We know that Rivka receives a prophecy that both of her <clears throat> yet-to-be-born twins would become nations and kingdoms, and that the older would serve the younger. The Torah also says that when Yaakov ultimately grew up, he was a complete man, a man who dwelled in tents, T-E-N-T-S, right? And that at one point, Yaakov made some lentil soup and exchanged it for Esau's firstborn birthright. Okay, interesting. We also know that Yaakov's mother loved him and that he yielded to his mother's insistence that he dress up like Esau and pretend that he was, in fact, Esau, so that he would receive the blessings of his father, Yitzhak. We then know that Yitzhak blesses him with the blessings that he intended to give Esau, as well as the blessings of Abraham, his father, coming at the end of Parshish Tobias. We know that Yaakov was sent by both his father and mother to her family and birthplace in order to escape from Esau's wrath, as well as find a suitable wife for himself. That's it. That's it. That's what we know about him. Those are all the facts that are in the Chumash. Yes, I know Chazal understand that learning intense means that he was steeped in Torah study. Okay, I'm not saying the Torah does not mean that. The Torah is not making explicit mention of that. So we have to pay attention to what the Torah does make explicit mention and extract from that even the fact that he was a, you know, a tremendous Talmud Chacham. Like, where exactly are we seeing that? And other aspects of what we would assume to be his greatness without the Torah actually physically stating so. So despite this scarcity of details regarding Yaakov and his own accomplishments and actions, we now find here in our Parsha, Parsha Svayetze, spectacular, I mean, I mean spectacular commitments and promises from Hashem delivered to Yaakov in breathtaking fashion. I mean, that dream has been the subject of many artists' renderings. Am I right? Looking at Mrs. Kainoff, right? <clears throat> it's a breathtaking dream. It's just unbelievable. A ladder, ground, heavens, angels, up and down, God standing over the ladder, plus everything that is said in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, the place from which the world was founded, which we <clears throat> may talk, might talk about a little bit more. So the question is, what was the already achieved greatness and significance of Yaakov Avinu that merited? these spectacular commitments and promises and vision from Hashem. I, I just told you the paragraph, he made lentil soup and he bought the birthright. Okay, that's cool, I guess, right? He was intense. He was a man of perfection. I'm not trying to minimize that at all. Is that the therefore that he gets these, you know, unbelievable promises and this vision? So how does Yaakov Avinu merit to deserve the copious blessings he receives in last week's posture. Forget about this week, right? Already last week, he's getting tremendous blessings several times. First, Yitzchak gives him the blessings which were originally intended for Esau. Then Yitzchak ratifies a second time bestowing these blessings on Yaakov. 
Then he repeats to Esav in more detail Yaakov's blessings. And finally, Yitzchak concludes by clearly giving Yaakov the Abrahamic blessings. That's all in last week's parasha. And then in this week's parasha, you have the dream that we already described. So who is Yaakov Avinu? That's our fundamental question. This week's parasha opens with an almost unbeatable mystical prophetic experience, as we've mentioned, because <clears throat> it also contains, you know, the ladder, et cetera, plus additional blessings for Yaakov. And this time it's directly conferred by Hashem. It's not through Yitzchak, right? It's directly by Hashem. So here is the opening of the parasha. Yaakov left Be'er Sheva, set out for Haran. He came upon a, a place, stopped there for a night, but the sun had set. I just want to mention something interesting here because in case I don't mention it later, remind me, there's a Midrash that says that when he came back, because uh, he traveled to first the Haran, then he realized he had passed by the area where his father's Davin, and he turned back, and we have the whole miracle that happened that the land traveled. He got there quickly. That's the whole discussion that we've shown him, you know, where his quick travel happened. But one of the Midrashim, I think it's the Pirkei Rebbe Yezer and others that say that when Yaakov came to the Temple Mount and he prayed there, the sun was in the middle of the day. And so Yaakov prayed and he's leaving. And Hashem says, no, you have to stay. And Yaakov says, he looks at his watch, he says, stay? It's the middle of the day. What am I going to do? Just hang out over here? So Hashem made the sun set. And that's why Yaakov stayed. And that's why he had a dream. And that's what the Medrash is actually meaning when it says that the sun had set early that day. We'll come back to it. Okay. So taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place. He had a dream. A ladder was set on the ground and its top, its head, reached to the sky and angels of Hashem were going up and down on it. And Hashem was standing beside him and he said, I am Hashem, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Yitzchak. The ground on which you are lying, I will assign to you and to your offspring. There's even a Midrash that Hashem folded the entire area of Eretz Israel under him in that moment. The ground upon which he is lying. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and your descendants. Remember, I am with you. Sashem talking. I am with you. Who wouldn't give that, right? We would like to wake up with that, right? I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised Yaakov awoke from his sleep and said, surely Hashem is present in this place and I did not know it. Shaken or afraid, he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the abode of Hashem and this is the gateway to heaven. So this prophecy is not only magnificent, it is foundational for the Jewish people. It promises the land of Israel to the descendants of Yaakov. It speaks about the numerousness of his offspring. Hashem promises Yaakov physical security and protection, and it also sublimely depicts a gateway to the nexus of heaven and earth called the gateway to heaven. So why is Yaakov Avinu chosen for all this, right? That's still our essential question. So perhaps we can unlock some of the mystery regarding the quiddity of Yaakov. I like that word, I saw it today. It's like basically another essential uniqueness, the quiddity, the essential uniqueness of Yaakov Avinu by analyzing his own response to this vision presented to him by Hashem. In other words, let's look at what Yaakov's reaction is to this vision, and let's try to understand from that more about his mindset, more about who he is. So here's what the Torah describes as Yaakov Avinu's reaction. As we mentioned, he awoke from his sleep and he said, surely Hashem is present in this place, 
and I did not know it. And he was awed. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of Hashem. And this is the gateway to heaven. Yaakov arose early in the morning. Yaakov took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He named that site Basel, but previously the name of that city had been Luz. Now, everybody agrees that ultimately the place that he names, uh, I shouldn't say everybody agrees, but it seems that everybody ultimately agrees that uh, what he's really designating as the house of Hashem is what we call Jerusalem, the Temple Mountain specific. Yaakov then made a vow, a promise, right, a neder, saying, if God remains with me, protecting me on this journey that I am making and giving me bread to eat and clothing to wear, and I return safe to my father's house, Hashem shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, shall be God's house, and all that you give me, I will set aside a tithe for you. So just one very simple point that I want to make before we analyze, especially this idea that Yaakov is making a tithing to Hashem, and just want everybody to understand a very important, simple, necessary, you know, understanding of this phraseology. It sounds like Yaakov Avinu is saying, hey, God, if you keep the promises that you made me, then you'll be my God. That's what it sounds like. And that's very problematic on every level. So a better way to understand that, and this is really Rashi and the Ramban, although they have some differences in their understanding, on this they certainly agree, that this is not an if-then that Yaakov Avinu is presenting. It's a when. When it comes true that I have returned in peace to my father's home, to this land of Israel, then I will set up this stone as a house of Hashem. So it's not if Hashem does, it's when it happens, that's what I will do, and that's a nether, that's a vow. Okay, everybody good? Okay, now, here are the components of Yaakov's vision. And then we're going to do the components of his response. Then we're going to ask a few questions. And then we're going to dive in. So the components of Yaakov Avinu's vision are a ladder standing on the ground with its head in the heavens, angels traversing it up and down, assurances by Hashem that he will inherit Eretz Israel and that his progeny will proliferate in all directions, and that Hashem will protect him wherever he goes and also bring him back home. Hashem will not abandon him. Here are the components of Yaakov Avinu's response. He exclaims that he had not previously known that Hashem's presence was herein located. He was awed, and he declared that this place to be a house of Hashem and the gateway to heaven. He took the stone from his head and erected it as a monument or a pillar and poured oil on its head. He called the name of this place Basel, house of Hashem. That's what Basel means. He then makes a vow saying that in exchange, for Hashem providing for him and protecting him, the stone monument that he had just erected will indeed become a house of Hashem. Okay, let's dive into our questions. Number one, why does Yaakov so heavily emphasize the concept of a house as this is the house of Hashem? And this is the monument, this monument pillar will become a house of Hashem. What's a monument? What's a pillar? Which is really question number two. What in fact is the concept of a monument or a pillar? I know we say that things are monumental, but I'm having a hard time understanding what is a monument in the Torah. What does it mean to build this monument into a house of Hashem? Number three, why does Yaakov Avinu respond with a vow? Why not simply do whatever he thinks he's going to do, right? If, he, if his intention is that, okay, 
Hashem, you know, when you, uh, you know, do this thing, I'm going to turn this into a house of Hashem. He doesn't need to declare, to declare it. He doesn't need to make it an obligation on himself. Why is he doing that? And finally, number four question is, how does the concept of tithing directly correlate to this sublime vision of Yaakov Avinu with its accompanying blessings and guarantees? What's the idea of a vow? How does that mesh specifically? I'm going to give 10%, you know, or 20%, actually, the rabbis say, because he uses the word ma'aser twice here. So it's two-tenths that Yaakov Avinu is actually uh, saying he's going to do. What? You know, there's many things he could do. I'll, I'll study Torah for many hours a day. I'll do a lot of chesed for many hours a day. What's, what's the idea of tithing? How does that directly correlate to this idea of Hashem protecting him, the promises, the vision, etc.? So I'd like to suggest a starting point concept as to the significance of a monument or a pillar. Now, I keep saying monuments and pillar because it's really translated uh, both ways, but also I think they have specific connotations, both of which are relevant, okay? So here's my suggestion. The notion of taking an object and setting it up as a monument or pillar means that human intervention can take something ordinary, we're talking about a stone, right? And designate it with lasting significance and importance. Even more to the point, is probably the notion that every physical object can be elevated to a higher purpose by human designation. So the idea of a monument or a pillar is you're designating an object as representing, symbolizing, and ultimately concretizing an important concept that elevates purpose. It ele I should say it elevates something to its higher purpose. So this idea is beautifully illustrated in the concept of a monument, especially one that, especially um, that a human being has the capacity by his designation to define and elevate an object to a higher purpose and functioning. Also, when an object is intentionally set up to stand, it acquires the properties of a top and a bottom. Indeed, the top is called the head of the object, and the anointing of the top, that's what it's called in the Torah, the anointing of the top concretizes that designation. So that means if you picture, you know, um, let's just take the average box, you set it up, right? Like, where's the top of the box? So if it has a specific purpose, it has a top. But basically, if you set it up, you're now saying this is the top, and this top is special because of what it represents. And what that means is you're giving something a standing, kind of literally, and you're also looking at it as though it has a top, you're pouring oil on top of it to say this is now its definition, which is exactly what we do when we anoint a human being. This is going to be related to Hanukkah concept, which is the concept of anointing. A chinuch is an anointing or a consecration, which is typically done by pouring oil on the head of a person. That's what it is. Why is that? Because what you're doing is you're, you're quantifying that the purpose of this human being is represented by its top, by its head, and now it has a specific purpose and function. So the concept of a monument or a pillar is that this human being has the capacity by his designation to define and elevate an object to a higher purpose and function. One of the amazing points about this is that the fact that a human being is able to do this speaks to the purpose of the human being itself, which is 
to designate and to give higher purpose. A great example of this, of course, is when Hashem created first man. One of the first things that first man did was name everything in creation. He gave it a designated meaning and a purpose. It wasn't a matseva per se, but what he did was designate a function and a purpose. And so this itself is a major enlightening point regarding the greatness of Yaakov Avinu. The lens through which Yaakov Avinu sees the universe is that of designation, of purpose, and higher functioning. Yaakov Avinu looks at the world not as what it is, but what it can become. That's how Yaakov Avinu looks at the world, and that's my personal definition of head in the clouds, where a person has a perspective that is literally heavenly as the elevated purpose of things, you look at the universe as what is that thing's higher purpose? How can it elevate? How can it fulfill, become perfected, so to speak, to what it can become, what its potential really is? So it's this itself, this paradigm itself that convinces Yaakov Avinu to accede to his mother's insistence that he step in line ahead of Esav to receive the blessings from the outset. Yaakov is a man of completion, of perfection, a man of tense. These descriptions are those of a contemplative and introspective human being seeking elevation to the fulfillment of a purpose and to thereby achieve completion. In other words, he's a man that thinks about life. He's a man who thinks about what is meaningful. He's not just consumed by what happens in the world, he spends time contemplating and thinking. And that is the beginning of a person understanding that there's purpose and there's ways to elevate everything in the world. When Yaakov Avinu encounters his brother Esav as a man, meaning Esav is a man who can only think about his own hunger, his own desires, and who sees his brother Yaakov as a person who should provide for those needs, Yaakov understands that Esav does not view the world through the paradigm of elevation, purpose, and completion. That becomes crystal clear at that moment, not that he didn't suspect it before. We assume that that's part of what it means that he's a man of the field. But that becomes absolutely verified when all Asaph can do is, hey man, pour me down, uh, pour me some of that soup down my throat. I need what I need now. But at this point, another greatness of Yaakov Avinu emerges. Yaakov Avinu knows that the birthright of being firstborn is a responsibility. Even though the firstborn responsibility are not Yaakov's to undertake, he nonetheless buys and acquires those responsibility, those responsibilities, I should say, because it is Yaakov Avinu's personal mission to elevate himself and truthfully, wherever needed, anyone and anything to their higher purpose and completion. This is the concept of establishing a house of God in this world on the ground. A house is a place where a person gets developed to the fulfillment of their higher purpose and completion. It is a safe environment for both restoration and development. That's what happens in a house. It's a place of growing. It's a place where you raise children. It's the place where you develop yourself. A base medrash is a similar concept. It's a place where it's a place of development, a place of thinking, a, a place of achieving a higher level of being a human being, meaning a higher level of the beingness of a human being. And so the therefore is that Yahuwah Avinu steps into these brachos, not because, hey, 
I get this all this good stuff, you know. I get, I, I, you know, I get, I get to get all this good stuff that Esav could have had, but I get it instead. Yaakov knows that that's not what a blessing is. A blessing is a major, major responsibility, and the responsibility is not Yaakov's; it's Esav's. Esav is the firstborn. But when Yaakov Avinu recognizes that Esav will not only not live up to that responsibility, but he actually scorns that responsibility, Yaakov Avinu gets that understanding that that's really the way Esav sees the firstborn rights. What do I need this firstborn? I'm going to die anyways. And the Torah actually, you know, testifies that Esav denigrates the firstborn rights. Yaakov Avinu steps into it, not because it's easy street, but because it's a responsibility that must be done. Because ultimately the responsibility of the firstborn rights and the blessings that will eventually, you know, potentially come along with that is a major undertaking. It is something for which Yaakov Avinu has to work endlessly hard for his whole life. But that's another feature of Yaakov Avinu, his willingness to work endlessly. We're going to talk about that in a couple of moments. So therefore, the concept of taking the monument and saying that the monument that I hereby designate as a symbol of the fact that this world is a place where Hashem expects development in the context of Hashem. That means to be able to access the house of Hashem, to be able to be developed into a higher level human being because of a relationship with Hashem. That's what Yaakov Avinu is saying is the place of his vision. Because Yaakov Avinu is saying that Hashem, when Hashem works with Yaakov Avinu in the next, what turns out to be 22 years, 20 plus years for sure, 21 and a half, 20, it depends how you calculate what happens at the end, when exactly Basel happens, when he comes back. But if over these next 20 plus years, Hashem actually is with Yaakov Avinu so that Yaakov Avinu can achieve what it means to be responsible for the firstborn rights, which he took from Esau, bought from Esau, for the blessings, which he took instead of Esau. So then Yaakov knows that ultimately what is happening is that a house of Hashem is getting established here. That means a place in this world where a person can truly elevate themselves to their higher purpose and ultimately elevate others to their higher purpose as well. And then it will become a fix that this place is the place not only of the house of Hashem, but it is truly the gateway to heaven. Because when we have this kind of lofty view of the world, we are then able to really be practical about how to help everything that is here on planet Earth, that is mundane, that has two feet on the ground, and that requires intense labor, even dealing with evil people, then we're able to do all of that for the specific purpose of raising it to fulfill its purpose and to bring it to its completion. This is why Yaakov Avinu so heavily emphasizes the concept of a house, as in this is the house of Hashem, and that this monument pillar will be, in fact become a house of Hashem. Right? It means that this is in a, a place where we're going to always access raising things to their higher purpose and functioning, which ultimately brings it to its completion and purpose. So 
why does Yaakov Avinu respond with a vow? And this is very, very, very important. And this, is a, this is a major concept. On the one hand, we are taught that righteous people make vows. If a person looks here in the commentaries, uh, it's, it's mentioned that Yaakov Avinu was one of the first examples of a righteous person to make a vow. On the other hand, we're taught by King Solomon, tov tidor, tidor it's better not to make a vow than even to make a vow and fulfill the vow. So first of all, if you make a vow and you don't fulfill it, that's a problem. But even though you make a vow and you fulfill it, it's still better not to make the vow. That's what King Solomon says. So the question is, should we make a vow or should we not make a vow? It seems like righteous people do this. It's Yaakov Avinu here. He's definitely not chastised for making this vow. So what's a person supposed to do? What's the right thing? Make a vow or don't make a vow? So my answer is this, and it speaks directly to this idea of responsibility of Yaakov. One of the great elements of Yaakov Avinu, one of the, the amazing aspects of him, is that he does what needs to be done, not because he's jazzed to do it, you know, not because, wow, wouldn't that be so cool if I could do that? And that's how a lot of people do things. Wow, wouldn't it be so cool if I could just do this or if I could just do that because of the way it'll make me feel when I do it or maybe some other payoff that I get later? No. Yaakov Avinu, I suggest, does these things because they must be done. Because his worldview is that Hashem created the world for a higher purpose. And in order for the purpose of the world to be fulfilled, we need human beings to elevate everything in the world to its higher purpose. We need a human being to realize his own functioning, his own purpose, the work that he needs to do to fulfill his purpose. That is not only a, you know, a requirement, requirement and a responsibility, it must be done. This is just what has to happen. And so therefore, if you're going to have a brother twin like Asa, that's not going to step into this major role of responsibility. Yaakov says, okay, I guess I have to do that too, right? Why? Not because I want to, not because I'm super excited to do it. We know that he bought the firstborn birthright. So maybe you could look at that as something that he wanted to do, but he certainly didn't want to go in and take the blessings. His mother, Rivka, literally pressured him into doing that. And then he did it, and then he chose it, and then he accepted the responsibility of choosing it. That's awesome. But that's what a vow properly done explains to the person making the vow. I do this not because I because I choose, you know, I want to do it the way it makes me feel. I do this because it must be done. I put it as an obligation upon myself because I recognize the absolute necessity and essential critical need that it must happen. And so therefore I make it as an obligation upon myself. Okay, but King Shlomo says, it's better to not make a vow than even to make a vow and fulfill it. Why is that? Because sometimes, sometimes people says, sometimes people say that a, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it later if you feel, sorry. Sometimes people say that, you know, I don't really want to do it, but if I force myself into doing it, I have to do it, then I'll do it. So sometimes people make a vow as a way of forcing themselves to do what they don't really want to do, but they know they should. But they don't, they don't have a real um, undertaking of commitment and responsibility to do it. The way that they force themselves to do it is because they're going to be penalized if they break their vow. That's not a good way to make a vow. That's my suggestion. But if you make a vow because you understand it must be done and you're really ready to undertake that commitment, it accomplishes two major things. One is that 
it speaks to you to tell you what the real responsibility is. And two, is that it does also make it clear and obvious to the people that are around you that you must actually be able to, um, you actually must be able to undertake commitments with, so to speak, a penalty. In other words, it's important that people around you learn by example. A great, you know, um, you know, corollary to this, uh, Joseph Rackman pointed out to me today is, you know, there are people that make anonymous donations, and that's wonderful. Uh, an anonymous donation is a wonderful thing, um, and it's even questionable why is it ever okay to, so to speak, aggrandize oneself by making a public donation, right? But the real answer is because people have to know that giving is a responsibility on everyone. And there are people that are willing to put themselves out there and say, you know what, I live up to the responsibility of giving. That's, that's a responsibility. And that's something that I have to live up to. And it's important that other people know that I live up to that so people understand the need of the responsibility of giving. That's a very credible, important thing that needs to get done. So we actually need people to publicly announce this is what I'm giving so that other people understand that taking on a commitment like that is really important. That's why Yaakov says, the corollary of understanding that Hashem will protect me, that Hashem will work with me, that Hashem will bring me back to Eretz Yisrael, that Hashem will give me Eretz Yisrael, that Hashem will increase my progeny, is that I'm in a 100% committed work relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and I proclaim that. It is my responsibility. It is my ongoing responsibility. I proclaim that my responsibility in my work relationship with Hashem is to give 10 or 20%. It's an obligation on me. That's what Yaakov Avinu is saying. He's going to build this place as the house of Hashem. That means this place is going to forever be known as a reality of we live in a relationship with Hashem. We have an obligation to elevate the world, to develop everything to its higher purpose. If I do it myself or I do it, you know, for other people, etc., meaning I do what other people won't do for themselves, it must get done. That's a um, that's you know a 100% obligation. And Yaakovin was saying that is a consequence of being created in this world and having a relationship with Hashem. The second step is that part of my responsibility is not only to elevate everything around me, but is to designate publicly that I give 10 or 20% because I, I have an ongoing work relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, where we're working together to elevate the creation. And part of the way that I do that is by giving generously the 10 or 20%. Okay. So one other, just I want to finish with this major, you know, one other major point that really speaks to the greatness of Yaakov Linu, that is the paradigm of seeing the world through the lens of everything has to achieve its purpose, and that I have a real responsibility to help myself, to help others when they don't help themselves to achieve that higher level of responsibility and purpose. Just think of it this way, and I, again, I, I say it's a major feature of Yaakov Linu. We know that Yitzchak that, um, that gives blessings to Yaakov and Esau. When Yitzchak gives the blessings, he doesn't really quantify who is Yaakov Avinu, who is Yitzchak Avinu. He doesn't really look at their unique purpose. He gives them the blessings, which you know are these wonderful things of the dew of the heavens and the, the, the richness of the earth. 
and all the good things that he gives them. A blessing that comes from Yitzchak is not a blessing of quantifying the human being that he's talking to. It's a bestowing of specific energies or good things, whether they be material or spiritual. Great. I suggest that that's the way even Avraham Avinu perhaps gave blessings, although you know exactly what Avraham's blessings were, we'll talk about a different time, but certainly Avraham Avinu got blessings from Hashem. But what we see about the Yaakov Avinu Bracha is that Yaakov Avinu is defining each and every one of his children as he's giving them a bracha. He's saying, Ruven, these are your qualities and you messed up big time, right? Shimon, these are your qualities. Levi, these are your qualities. You also messed up, but you have to know what your qualities are. Yehuda, these are your qualities and maybe they be expanded in the ways that Yaakov Avinu, you know, explains. And the same is true for all the tribes because Yaakov Avinu's look of the world is understanding what everything is and what its ultimate purpose can be and should be. That is a tremendous strength of Yaakov Avinu. And because of that, he gives those specific types of blessings. And because of that, he's really able to unify his children. Ultimately, he has to leave a lot up to Yosef and to the brothers, subject to another time. But he's able to help everyone ascertain their best functioning and purpose. And that is how unity happens. So when you read the Midrash about the 12 stones that he lay on became unified or other elements of Yaakov and the way that he's able to unify things, I suggest that it's built on a very two feet on the ground type of mentality and intelligence. I understand what something is. I understand what it can be. I try to help it to become that thing. And as long as everything is in line with what it's supposed to be, there will definitely be unity because everything ultimately is meant by Hashem to work with each other, to help each other, to synergize, and to help the whole world by collectively unifying their strengths and their, and their qualities and producing what they can. So that's a greatness feature of Yaakov Avinu. So the answer to our question of who is Yaakov Avinu? Yaakov Avinu who looks, is a person who looks at the world for the purpose and the elevation that it can be and understands that that's absolutely a 100% responsibility to bring that about. And if others are not living up to their responsibility to bring it about, then I have to step into that role to try to either take that responsibility or help them to take that responsibility. That's the role of Yaakov Vino. Now there's a lot more in the story, but just to conclude, what you see is he takes the responsibilities of Asav. He has this dream from Hashem, and suddenly he sees a bunch of shepherds in the field not living up to their responsibility. Say, hey, what are you guys doing? The sheep need to be watered. You can't just sit around, right? Or the Midrash that I said before, you know, he goes back he, to, the, to, the, to the Temple Mount, and he prays there, and it's the middle of the day. He says, you know, I'm supposed to go to Haran. I got to leave. Hashem says, uh, excuse me, you got to stay here. He says, what do you mean? <laughs> the, the, the day is long. I got to go do my work. What does he do? Shem makes the sunset, so Yaakov has to stay. But Yaakov is a person who uses every second, every opportunity to bring things to its ultimate purpose. And just, you know, really as, as a final, final thought, it's amazing to me. I don't know how about all of you, but I was thinking, let's say I had that dream, right, that Yaakov had. I'll protect you wherever you go. You're going to come back here. And then you have to deal with a guy like Lovin. <laughs> what are you going to say? Lovin, you know, get out of here, you know? Loving, you know, you don't know who you're dealing with. You know, God, God is with me. You know, I don't have to deal with you. I'm taking Rachel and I'm leaving. 
that's not the way Yaakov Avinu deals with reality because he understands the goal of reality is not that Hashem should solve it for him, but that he has to figure out with two feet on the ground how to make things work with people's choices. That's his job. It's not to say, listen, Hashem is just going to, you know, railroad you because Hashem is with me. No, I have to deal with you. I have to deal with Rachel. I have to deal with Leah. I have to deal with everybody and what they think should happen. I have to persevere through all of that and understand that somehow in this whole process, I'm going to help everybody find their elevated purpose and completion. Okay, any questions or comments? I know we have some from Rabbi Yechiel. Um, you want to start with that, Rabbi Yechiel, or you want to go later? Well, no, no, I just just pointing out that that's a, that's a machlokus tanoim, whether it's better not to swear at all. I just, I just wanted to point that out. But oh, I, had yeah. More, yeah. I, had a, I had a more important point. Uh, based on what you're saying, I just, maybe this is a general question, but assuming that there's a descending order, why wouldn't it have been like an Ace of first, then a Yishmol second, and then Yaakov third? In other words, it's very strange. You start, okay, you get part of the chaff away. Yishmoel's not so great, but Esau's really, really bad. And then you go to Yaakov, you switch to Yaakov, and he's everything's excellent. You know, yeah. that seems yeah. a bit yeah. odd, no? No, it, yeah, no, for sure, prima facie, you're 100% right. Right. It would seem to be that Esau that doesn't belong where he is. But I really understand that Esau is the aberration because Esau should have really been part of the Toledos of Yitzchak, and that would have been it. The problem is that Esau is choosing to opt out of his birthright and who he should be. But had Esau chosen properly, he would be the, the best complement for Yaakov, and we would have had a much better outcome as a Jewish people. He uh, really that, should have been. Yes, but now you're, tell, now you're saying something very wonderful. You're pointing out that if you don't choose to be the wonderful one, you could actually go to the dark side completely. 100%. And it's not that, only that's that. That's how powerful uh, free choice is. Right. That's how powerful free choice is. But it's not only that. He's given so many opportunities. Because if Asav somehow, you know, after selling the birthright, somehow overcomes that mistake, he's probably getting the brachos still. Yitzchak's still planning to give him the brachos. And on top of that, if, you know, he, okay, he loses the brachos, okay, fine. If he doesn't decide to kill Yaakov, he somehow works it out with Yaakov. He probably ends up marrying uh, Leah, and Yaakov probably ends up marrying Russell. And yeah, after- but then, now, again, you led another thing. You see how he was trying a bit, but he never accomplishes it. He tries to marry, he marries Yishmael's daughter. daughter. Yeah, and, and Rashi says on that, Hosik Risha al Rishaso. Yeah, it came out like that. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying, but the first wish is, is that he should not, this is the way you really have to say in Rashi, and Ramban certainly says, he should not have married the daughter of Yishmael because Yishmael is out. Yeah, but which, well, again, a partial shot would be the other way around. Simple shot would mean he's trying, but he's messing up big time because he no, doesn't no. get rid of the other wives. No, okay, if he but, that, married, but that's not Rishal Rishasso. That's the problem. Okay, but, well, could be, but could be it's only Rishal Rishasso because he didn't get rid of, rid of it because he says he didn't get rid of the first wives. No, that's the Rishal right. what's, Rishal. The, what's the What's the two Rishayo stuff? No, it's only becoming a Rishal Rishasso because she's adding, once you, if you add bad. If you add to the bad, the how is it adding bad, bad by not divorcing them? He's already Whatever, married. I'm just being at a point. That okay. You could say that there's the bad and you're adding it because it says 
Because Rashi doesn't say Rashi is, it's originally also because he's not getting rid of the first ones, which means the first ones are going to influence the first, second one. But if okay, you would okay. have gotten we'll, rid we'll of the first one. I think there's another chapter. I'm saying anyways, the Ramban learns that way. But but even aside from that, I'm saying even after all that, he should have married Dina. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's I'm, I'm just saying it could have been possible. Uh, you see from Chazal for sure that would have been possible. All yes. I'm saying any opportunities of Yaakov, of Esav, don't end until, you know, uh, that's where it ends. Seems. 